I'm excited for Louisiana and the country for living through this tumultuous election season with the results of the presidential election being finalized, challenged, and possibly recounted. Louisiana is still a reliably, reliably red state based on our statewide returns for Donald Trump and Bill Cassidy. But in Louisiana, we're also fortunate to have many talented progressive young people running across the state for elective office, for the US Senate, for congressional seats, city council seats, school boards, district judges, and other positions across the state. Generally, this podcast is about advocacy and politics in Louisiana. Today, we're talking to four amazing, talented young leaders who are influencing the future direction of Louisiana. The future of Louisiana will be changed by engaging young people, people of color, bringing new voices to the polls and working to make people believe that voting matters. We have to increase turnout and engagement. This podcast is called 17 Minutes to Change the World. Louisiana Progress believes that citizens need to be informed, engaged, and mobilized to hold our policymakers accountable. I am Melissa Flournoy, Chair of Louisiana Progress, a former Louisiana legislator and lifelong advocate. And we are here today with some terrific young leaders who are committed to moving Louisiana forward. We have Devonte Lewis, who is a candidate for the Metro Council in East Baton Rouge Parish, Katie Bodwin, who's currently in a runoff for the Orleans Parish School Board, Jennifer Harding, who's one of the founders of the Baton Rouge Progressive Social Network, and Charlie Stevens, an LSU student who's involved with College Dems, the State Democratic Party, and Louisiana Progress. So let's jump in with our first question to Devante. Um, Devante, give us a brief bio and what prepared you to think that this was the right time and the right race and where you wanted to run and tell us a little bit about your experience running for the Metro Council in Baton Rouge. Absolutely, Melissa, thank you. Uh, so I am originally from Lake Charles, Louisiana, um, and I've been active in politics for quite some time. Got my start um, in 2008 as the high school coordinator for Louisiana for students for Barack Obama, um, and then um, was big in kind of the high school chapters across the nation, was in Iowa, um, in 2008 and from there just kind of continued on um, and got really involved in policy and advocacy and um, now I'm the director of public affairs at the Louisiana Budget Project. I'm a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that's really working to uplift uh, poverty in the state of Louisiana and eradicate it. Um, and so I was really inspired to run by just the multitude of different things. I mean as a policy person um, I recognize how much it matters um, and we need new voices and the moments after George Floyd, uh, the lack of response in our nation from COVID-19, and then the policies that made COVID-19 even more uh, problematic. Like I used to say, and I wrote an op-ed about how uh, racism and poverty were the underlying conditions of COVID-19 that could have stopped and saved many lives. And so uh, the movement called me, the moment called me, and, and so I jumped in relatively late. Uh, I, I decided to run about a week before uh, qualifying and, and I kind of just picked up my bootstraps and and ran across uh, the district and I think you're starting to see young people across this nation 
stand up and do the exact same thing. And so uh, it was a great experience. It did not end the way that I wanted it to, but it's also a testament to the work that we were able to do in such a short period of time. Well, you know, Devontae, I want to give you a shout out because you're young, you're 28 years old, you've been an, a school teacher, uh, you're a policy advocate, you're a lobbyist at the Capitol, um, you're from Lake Charles, but you're really making a name for yourself in Baton Rouge. And so I just really appreciate your, you putting yourself out there to run because you were running in a pretty big field, don't you think? Absolutely. I was running with six other people, originally seven, one who was endorsed by the incumbent, one who had been running for the seat for, for almost 20 years, um, a person who was the chair and the president of the local branch of the NAACP, um, a person whose mother is a pastor and a longtime activist. So I had a lot of people um, in this race who had, had some institutional support, things that I did not have. I, I'm not from Baton Rouge, didn't live here uh, quite as long as everybody else, uh, only just shy of three years. Um, and so to give them kind of a hell uh, for their money is a testament to kind of how you just, when you speak to the people and you mobilize and energize people, uh, change can happen. Well, I hope this means that you're going to put down rates in, in, in Baton Rouge and sort of build your professional career here now that you've had this experience. Um, what are some of the lessons that you learned as a first-time candidate uh, in a parish, in a district for the Metro Council? Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing you have to do is you can't rely on everyone else to get the word out for you. You got to really, you got to really fight and make a name for yourself. I think one of the great lessons is stick to who you are. Uh, oftentimes campaigns want to make you somebody different or want you to do some different things. And I really kind of stuck um, to what I am, which is a policy nerd and really talk to people about policy. Um, and I think the last thing that I learned, and I think Democrats across and progressives across this country are learning is that ground game matters. I mean, I took, I took a gamble and followed the lead of some national organizations that didn't want to canvas um, because of COVID-19. Um, and I think I saw some of, the, some of the ramifications of not being able to knock on every door and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. I um, mean, we see that those who did it in, in Detroit and in uh, Minneapolis, I'm um, in Philly made, made some difference. And so I think um, it, I knew it going into it, but I, I'm really more convinced now that ground game and actually talking to people on the ground is probably the most important thing in any campaign. Well, I agree. I think people want to invest in authentic leaders. They want to see you. They want to know you're for real, you know, but you had a great brand and great social media and a great, you know, Facebook presence and others. So you know, you really leveraged your resources. So, you know, that's one of the things that I think we're seeing differently with you younger people running is that you know how to use technology uh, and you really be much more sophisticated. Now, Katie, I, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about you uh, and why you jumped in the school board race and sort of some of the same lessons that you may have learned. And then I'm going to brag on you a little bit after you finish. Okay. Thanks, Melissa. Um, it's really great to be here. Um, I'm delighted to be in a conversation about young people and to be considered among that number. I think I have about one more month of uh, being considered young, so I'll take it. Thank you very much. Um, I am uh, I decided to run for school board actually before the pandemic, so it's been something I've been looking uh, at for a while now. The seat that I'm running for currently um, 
was uh, vacated this summer by um, an, uh, our previous board member. And he announced or sort of made it known very early this year that he was going to um, resign in the summertime. And so there was a process to select an interim board member. I, um, I put my name up for consideration as interim. I was not selected, but I had already decided that if I didn't, well, if I wasn't selected, I was still going to run for the full term in the fall. The reason I decided on this seat and this time is really because I'm a parent. I'm a public school parent, and I'm also a constituent of the school board, and I had been disappointed in some interactions with our previous board member in how he um, approached public service and approached representation of his constituents. And as somebody who has worked in public service basically her whole career, um, I know that you have to be working for your constituents. That's what your job is. And so I, I knew that I could do better and I, um, I felt like it was a good time um, as a parent also, I feel like our, our voices are really underrepresented on the school board for lots of reasons. I mean, it is an unpaid position and it's at least part-time, if not more, depending on what's going on. And so that is not often something that public school parents can do. Um, it's a luxury that I can, um, I think <laughs> we will see, <laughs> but I have faith that I will figure it out. Um, but I really feel like if you can serve, uh, then you should try to. So I have been working in this sort of area for a long time. It warms my heart to hear Devante talk about the Louisiana budget project, something that Melissa and I started when I actually was young, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, I worked for Melissa when I was just a baby um, at Lano and we did so much great stuff. And, you know, um, I'm really proud of the work that we did there and I've been able to talk about it. Um, I've been able to really talk with people about the school readiness tax credit that we worked so hard to pass that still exists is still helping people access high quality early childhood um, education and it's something that's so important for the public school system and for our city and so I'm just I really feel like if I'm able to serve on the school board it'll be um, the, uh, you know a good natural next step to a career in this um, this sort of area so um, I think that answered all your questions what did I learn I mean agreed with Devante the ground game is is important and it's hard to do during a pandemic. I mean, as I mentioned, I had planned to do this before <clears throat> the world caught on even more fire than it was. And I am, uh, you know, I obviously had to give it a lot of consideration about whether I was gonna continue and, and actually run. You know, I didn't have childcare for six or eight months. And um, my, you know, my, I was homeschooling while running or monitoring homeschool while I was running for a lot of this. So it was not the most convenient time for the parent of small kids to be running, but uh, I did go out and knock on doors. I knocked on a lot of doors and made a lot of phone calls. Um, I think that maybe um, sort of the opposite of Devante though, I did not have a super great social media game. Um, not, not quite in that, um, 
in that generation, I don't think. So any suggestions and tips, uh, very helpful to hear. But um, but it it's important. It was it was hard. I didn't have events. You know, other people did have events. They had either small ones in the outside or even riskier, in my opinion, um, indoor events. And I really wanted to not do that. I wanted to make sure that everyone came out of my campaign healthy. And so um, I did dist socially distant door knocking and a lot of phone calls. And um, the most important thing I learned was that the undervote in school board was huge. You know, people, we had a huge turnout for president in New Orleans, but with about a dozen or more, you know, judge races and a pretty big DA race, you know, the school board definitely got lost in the shuffle. And so in every precinct, you saw major drop off in election day and, and, um, and mail-in absentee voting for school board. And so that's really something I'm gonna be working on in the runoff. Well, I think that's the problem when you've got such a long ballot and New Orleans is a hot mess when it gets to judicial races. There are just so many judges running, it's hard to figure it out. And so, you know, getting in a runoff, there'll be fewer of those races. And so hopefully there'll be a little more clarity but, you know, uh, Katie, you've had a great career. You work with Lano. You've served some time, you know, being a lobbyist for us at the legislature, working with the Department of Health, and now being with the city council. And so you really have seen sort of every level um, of government and have firsthand experience. And, you know, I just want to lift up how important school boards are, because I think one of the challenges we're seeing in basically every metropolitan area uh, and really probably every parish is trying to recruit high quality people who wanna pay attention to the details around public education. And so um, I think that we're seeing that in Baton Rouge and, and Shreveport and other places. So, you know, being a parent, um, well, that's a full-time job in and of itself, but also putting yourself out to run, I think is really even harder for young people. And so, um, raising money is also a huge challenge. Devontae didn't mention that, but I think one of the things that we're seeing for a lot of the local races, school board, Metro Council, other races, is that, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, big marquee races like the U.S. Senate, you know, it's hard to raise money. So the kind of the pivot here is, you know, what do you learn about running a successful campaign on a shoestring budget? And how do you fundraise and use uh, volunteers in an election? And, and how do you encourage people to participate to want to be part of this sort of power building exercise? So, um, Katie, what do you think? How do you raise money? Dialing for dollars. It's something you taught me a long time ago. Um, you know, you don't run for office if you don't want to ask everyone you've ever known to give you some money, whether it's $25 or $2,500. And I got $25 donations from people um, and I got $2,500 donations from people. And you have to be able to dial the phone to people and say, look, I know you're, it's a tough time right now. Um, but I, I think you believe in me. This is why I believe in myself. This is why I think I'm right for this position. And can you chip in? And, um, you know, we didn't raise our fundraising. Well, I didn't meet my fundraising target, but um but I, you know, I had an, I was, I still had money in the bank on election day and I was able to do everything I wanted to do. 
Um, we ran a really lean campaign. I didn't buy t-shirts, you know, I, I bought just enough signs, uh, for, you know, for the long haul. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't hire a billion consultants and, um, uh, and, you know, just kind of was tried to be really targeted. You know, we did, we did three mail pieces. Mail is the most expensive sort of was the most expensive part of my budget. And I was able to mail three times, which was huge. That's, you know, that's important to get the name out, especially when you're not having big events and in my district and sort of my, my demographic of my district, it was, it was useful. And so I was able to do that. I had to be a little more targeted with my mail than if I had had just money coming in hand over fist, which it was not. Um, so use any volunteers. I mean, you know, we had great, I had great volunteers. Um, and same thing, if people aren't able to give, I asked them to give me some of their time and they did. So what we did with our, what I did with my volunteers, um, they went out, came out canvassing with me. So they knocked on doors with me. They went out by themselves. Sometimes they made phone calls. Um, that was a good use of volunteers out of town. Um, I had two aunts that, you know, don't mind talking on the phone. And so they called people, um, for me and just, you know, marked down whether they're going to vote for me or not that really important data collection. And then we also had a really vibrant, um, postcard, sorry, my dog's barking, um, a really vibrant postcard sort of, uh, effort. So, um, wrote postcards to people who, we, whose doors we couldn't knock on. And I had a few volunteers who just really just wrote hundreds of postcards for me. Um, and that was great too. Another way to get in people's, you know, in front of people, um, in this weird time. Well, yeah. And I think handwriting postcards really makes a huge difference. I mean, you can get the slick mail piece uh, that has your picture of your, uh, your cute husband and your precious little children and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, handwritten postcards really, I think, demonstrate that somebody's actually volunteering or participating or it just feels a little bit more personal or more real. So yeah. mm-hmm. and I think these are kind of, exactly. And these are kind of things you can do that don't cost a ton of money. So Devonta, you actually did pretty well raising money. What, what were your what was your trick? Uh, and what kind of, what did you learn about this process of actually running a campaign and how did you use volunteers? Absolutely. I mean, raising money, I thought was going to be one of my challenges and and proved to be, if anything, the strength in my race, I raised, um, the most outpacing all of my opponents by, by almost three to one. Um, and the wildest thing that people don't know there weren't, I didn't get too many big dollar checks. I mean, a lot of my average contribution to my campaign was 101 and one cent, uh, surprisingly. Um, and I think leveraging digital, I think that is, that is the key is using your network. So um, I didn't use a lot of call time. Um, a lot of mine was just posting it on my social media and kind of getting it into the atmosphere uh, to my friends and family and acquaintances that I've met along the way. Um, and, and it just kind of built itself into almost the kind of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type of like small donor, um, grassroots movement. Um, and so I think some of the lessons that I would do better, of course, I'd probably do call time and actually t- call people. Cause it's, it's very awkward. Um, especially when you're used to 
being on the opposite end of the equation. Um, but I think the challenges of running and, and getting money is, is very key to young people, but I think volunteers are even better. And so we, we really leveraged um, young people. We leveraged family members, my mom and my sisters and my grandmother text every single day. Um, I think they enjoyed it too much. I had to remind them that I'm not fundraising enough for you to text every day like that. So uh, uh, stop having all so many conversations. But I think what you do is you just inspire people. You just give people hope um, that what you're doing is something that they want to be a part of. And um, I think you leverage that to the best of your ability and you get so many different volunteers to help you. And that's that's what we did. Well, I think you ran, you know, you ran a very visible campaign. You had good sign locations. I mean, part of it is sort of building that local network, uh, which is really important. And how do you connect with that? And that's sort of a great segue to, you know, add Jennifer and Charlie into the conversation. I mean, Jennifer Harding is the uh, one of the founders of the Baton Rouge Progressive Social Network and is also a, a paid organizer with Vogue. Um, and you, so Jennifer, tell us a little bit about the challenges of how to mobilize volunteers. What's the role of advocates? You know, how do we get more people involved? Um, because not everybody wants to be a candidate. I know I've tried to recruit you to be a candidate several times and, and uh, that's just not your, your game. So, you know, how do we get people who care about the community and care about politics to uh, get, get connected and get mobilized? Great. Um, thanks so much for having me in this conversation with these dynamic people. Um, I'm just like honored and humbled to be um, here with everybody. And uh, so um, what organizations like Progressive Social Network have been doing sort of since uh, for, for several years now, but, but particularly since the last presidential election was really um, working in this nonpartisan sort of voter education, voter mobilization, civic engagement space to really kind of um, energize folks, channel people's energy, but also too to kind of expand our electorate a little bit. So, you know, while Louisiana has a pretty decent um, rate for voter registration, we, we don't really have great participation when it comes to the elections. And we, we know we have a ton of elections. And so, you know, um, what we've been really trying to do is, uh, you know, connect uh, voters on the issues so that, and just kind of draw that parallel, draw that line to the issues that actually directly impact you and your family and your community. And, and how do you find um, the, the candidates and the campaigns that actually speak to those sorts of things? And so um, we've been doing a lot of reaching out to the, the folks that the candidates and campaigns traditionally either ignore or don't have the resources to get to. And that's uh, frequent voters of color, the um, you know, newly reenfranchised, uh, formerly incarcerated people, folks like that, that you know, are, are not uh, super participators in the election um, and just really trying to bring them in. And the way we've been doing that is really just good old fashioned organizing, having conversations, uh, finding common ground on, on really important issues and, um, and really sort of um, educating folks on the importance of voting all the way down your ballot. And, and you know, we saw in this last election that the ballot was enormous, it was immense. And so we had a lot of work to do on the front end of helping people to understand every single thing on there and, and helping them to feel prepared before they walked into that 
ballot box that they could really like um, feel confident that they could vote um, from the top of the ticket all the way down to the very last constitutional amendment on there. And we're really just trying to help people realize the power of their vote and really kind of make that emotional connection where they do feel part of the process, that their voice does matter, um, and, and that they actually do have the individual ability to affect change that, that will actually, you know, uplift their, their own personal situation, but also improve their community um, in general. So, um, so this year was different, um, co the COVID pandemic really kind of put, uh, you know, made it difficult to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so we, we had to kind of shift gears and, um, and, and try some new things. We really had to kind of rely more on technology. Uh, some folks have been using these relational organizing apps, uh, so using technology to help us to kind of maintain those connections, right? And then we're really helping people to sort of feel empowered to le leverage their own networks to reach out to their friends and family, to start to have conversations about voting, to have conversations about the issues that are important to you and, and to check in, to check in with each other and just say, hey, you know, are you gonna, how are you gonna vote? What's your plan? You know, these, these kinds of conversations that kind of really help definitely increase participation. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I feel like we have seen uh, an increase in voter participation. We have seen a change in voter behavior, especially over these past couple of years. We've had, we continue to see record voter turnout, especially for um, black voters in the state of Louisiana. And um, here in the capital city, I always have to brag on it, but we are leading the state in voter participation um, consistently year after year, breaking records. And it's, it's thrilling and exciting um, to be a part of it. Well, I'm really optimistic about groups like Progressive Social Network. There are a lot of different organizations uh, in New Orleans and Shreveport and some other communities as well that aren't necessarily partisan but our educational mobilization. You know, I've been on all these national conference calls about the presidential election. And what really works is year round organizing. It's not just, oh, we're gonna sweep in and, you know, 30 days before an election and try and whip everybody into shape. I mean, it's really important to try and educate and like what progress is trying to do, inform, engage and mobilize and build those relationships to have people want to care about these issues. I mean, my sense is, and this may be really true of young people too, and Charlie, let me shift to you, is that folks have almost too much information. You're just inundated with, with information or media. There's too many sources of information. You don't even know who to trust or, you know, what's really going on. And so, you know, Charlie, you're a savvy college student and you've been active with the Democratic Party and college Democrats and Louisiana Progress and others. I mean, how do we connect with these younger college age students, even if they're not in college? How do we reach out to this 18 to 24 year old demographic and get them to uh, understand that they have power? Well, first, thanks so much for the question. And I, I think something you mentioned before of having with this sort of like media overload, like we've become very big consumers of media and a lot of their different rights. And I think it's just like meeting people where they are. We talked a lot about how Devante like had a very unique digital strategy, or I guess not unique, but 
uh, at least among the local races here in Baton Rouge, probably unique. Um, just meeting people where they are, where like not forcing them, oh, I'm going to put up a TV ad or I'm going to like send a mailer. It's like, hey, like a lot of people literally throw away all their mail. A lot of people do not watch ads um, on TV. So it's just like making sure that people are seeing your message wherever they are and not like forcing people to go to you because they're not going to do that. Um, I think that's a unique way to get involved or get college students involved. And as for like the non-college students, I think the, the same organizing works. Like we we're all, we all kind of grew up in this very digital age of that is where your information is. This is how to get around X, Y ad, how to get around this ad. Like everyone's been figuring that out. And I think just like meeting people where they are is like the best strategy. So, so you think young people, I sound like everybody's grandmother today, you young people, but uh, you know, it seems like technology is the hook for younger voters. That's where they consume information. And so being able to develop strategies that create content that is engaging and uh, interesting enough to capture somebody's attention for more than a nanosecond seems to be a real challenge. Well, I think definitely you have to make a personal connection with people. With people. They understand that like you're making an ad. <laughs> um, so I think just making sure that like you're talking about issues that interest the people you're trying to reach. You're talking about things that are very relevant to them that like affect their daily lives. Like, I don't know if you're running for Metro council, be like, so the LSU area, oh, y'all know that stretch of Highland Road, it literally sucks. So <laughs> maybe I'll fix that. And then people will be like, oh, okay. And then like, I, I think just like meeting people where they are and talking about things that are like relevant. Yeah, so making it more real. So this is not theoretical political science issues. This is more like, I got kids that are, are in the one app and can't get into the school that they want to get into. I mean, Katie, so how do you focus on, like what are the particular issues that resonate with voters in like a school board race where, um, what captures the imagination or attention of people? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've really uh, tapped into that yet. I'll be quite honest. Um, I do think that the, that the parent thing is helpful. I mean, I've definitely connected, especially right now. Um, I think with everybody, every time I knocked on a door and, you know, said I was a parent and, you know, asked if they had school age children, um, if they did, even if they didn't, um, everybody is interested in what's going on in public schools right now. Are they going to open, you know, before they did, are they going to open up? Is it going to be safe? You know, how am I supposed to go back to work if my kids don't have, you know, if I can't send my kids to school or, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I can't teach that. I don't know how this new way of math and I can't help them with their schoolwork and just, you know, sort of parents being at the end of their rope a lot of times in the last couple of months. And, I could absolutely relate to that. Um, and, uh, you know, there were many times when 
you know, I'd be doing events and my kids would just pop on up <laughs> and say, what's going on? Who's who you talking to today? Um, because they were here for all of it um, because they just weren't in school uh, for a lot of it. And so um, that is one way I really um, was able to connect with parents in the district. Um, and, uh, you know, it's difficult though. I don't want, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the right balance though of not using them as props and just having them be everywhere. You know, it's, I'm, I'm running this race, it, uh, they are not. And there's only so much you can really fairly bring, uh, you know, little kids in that don't have the ability to, you know, to um, affirmatively approve that they're okay with being involved in all of this. So I'm trying to be really cognizant of that um, while also using my, my status as a parent to, um, to connect with people as, as Charlie was, was talking about. Um, uh, but also I didn't, these were not my ads, but um, somebody else ran ads to, in support of my campaign. And they were all over the like dumb iPad apps that my kids play you know uh -huh. and so um every once in a while they'd run into the room and say look mommy you're on the ipad um so uh, that was an interesting ad buy <laughs> um I, I didn't you know we didn't have that kind of money but somebody else did so um finding people where they are is something that um i'm still trying to figure out you know i think it's always a work in progress well maybe after this you and Devontae can get together and talk about social that'd be great um, because I think Devonte, you did it really well. Part of it is how do you make people care about the offices you're running for and, you know, school board, if you don't have kids, how do you make people who don't have kids interested in school board? Yeah. You know, if you're living in a neighborhood that you think is a pretty safe neighborhood, how do you make people care about streets and drainage and police and infrastructure and all of that? So, you know, Devonte, what advice do you have for other young people, young professionals, you know, considering running for office? I and mean, what's one of the takeaways for you that would either make you want to do it again or encourage somebody else to run? You know, what did you learn through this process? Absolutely. I would say the thing that I always say is the possibility. Um, the pos Everything is possible. I mean, we always talk about policy and you know I'm a policy person so I go back to that but every policy is possible and when we have that kind of imagination of we know it's possible it may be hard it may be uh long it may not take uh as short of a time as we would want it but it is possible um and then we we convince ourselves and we do it I, I am a strong believer in passion without action is a wasted emotion and so when your passion speaks to you you have to act because otherwise being passionate about fixing schools or being passionate about making your community more sustainable or beautiful means absolutely nothing if you don't do anything about it. And I would tell people like, if you are inspired to run, run. Um, but then also know that running for office is not the only avenue. Um, there are tons of boards and commissions and appointments that are there um, that oftentimes just go to donors or well-connected individuals. But when you get out there and you show that you care about sustainability when it comes to the environment, or you care about uh, the beautification of our streets and in our schools, or anything else, 
uh, you can make a difference. And I think the reason we don't have political power as young people is because we haven't tried to take it. Um, and we always know power is never given, it is taken. Um, and so for us to have a new kind of millennial Gen Z atmosphere in our society, we got to step up and actually take the power because no one's going to wait to pass the torch to us. Um, and so that's what I did. And so um, now you've respected and now people want to be part of your process and hear your ideas and, and talk with you because they recognize the potential that you have. So that's, that's the advice that I would give people. Yeah, so just jump in and run because, you know, if you're willing to accept the risk uh, financially and personally, you know, there's really, you know, a great way to make a difference. And, you know, when I ran the first time, I was 29 years old and I was the dog that caught the car uh, when I got elected to the legislature. Nobody thought I could win. And it was very patronizing, kind of like, oh, isn't that sweet? Melissa's running for the legislature. And so I agree. I think we've just got to get young people, you know, the whole 40 under 40 notion is very real. And the Baton Rouge Business Report just put out their latest edition. And Katie, you're still young and will always be young to me. Um, but yeah, but to see people who are in their early 20s starting businesses, starting nonprofits, you know, lifting up their believing in themselves, I think is the real issue that's important. So, you know, I've always said that you find your power when you put your passion into action. And so when you use that phrase, Devontae, um, that really resonates with me. So y'all are all out in the community. You've been in the streets talking to people. You've been recruiting volunteers. You've been working with different organizations. You know, what makes you optimistic uh, about the future of Louisiana? So I'm going to start with you, Jennifer. Why are, are you are you optimistic, and what makes you optimistic about Louisiana? I am optimistic. Um, I, you know, I am a Louisiana native who took a little break out there in, uh, you know, Berkeley, California, getting my political education to come back home. Um, and when I came back home, I didn't know, it, you know, where where I fit in, in you know, in this state and. Um, you know, since 2016, we have seen just like a groundswell of grassroots engagement happening from every corner of the state. And it, it is really exciting. And we're seeing, um, you know, behaviors change. We're seeing more people becoming engaged um, and, and activated and, and sustaining that, you know, um, that energy between the elect election cycles. So, I'm thrilled. Um, voting is cool again. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it's like, it is a thing that people want to do. And that's really exciting. Um, I do think that, you know, speaking to making sure that we um, continue to keep young people uh, part of this conversation, uh, you know, us in the advocacy space need to do a better job of listening. And then also making sure that we're including young people in um, positions of leadership and giving them really real decision-making power um, because, the, the, you know, it's, it's their future. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we really need to support their vision for what Louisiana um, can be. But I, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, I, I, I think that there's nowhere to go but up. Amen. Amen. And I think people want to be optimistic about Louisiana. I mean, part of the challenge is also getting people who go to LSU to come back. You know, the folks that leave after they've gotten an education here, 
you know, we want to build the kind of Louisiana people want to live in. And, you know, Katie, you could have gone anywhere and lived in D.C. or stayed in D.C. when you worked up there. You know, what brought you home and and sort of what is your what is your sense of optimism for the future of Louisiana? Um, well, you can't change things from outside. I mean, you have to be here to see to to be to participate in the progress. Um, you, you know, I, I know so many people who have left Louisiana who on election night post on Facebook complaining about how Louisiana has voted. And it's like, if you want, if you, you know, you cannot say, Louis, you know, Louisiana is terrible for being a red state sitting in a comfortable blue state. And it's just, I'm not, I'm not here for it anymore. Um, and so, you know, uh, I really felt like I never wanted to leave Louisiana. Um, certainly my time in Washington didn't make me, didn't change that at all. <laughs> always wanted to be here, um, and, uh, have always, you know, that's always been my plan, but, um, I, I agree. I think I could have gone somewhere else, but, um, but I, my heart's here. I, I feel uncomfortable if I'm outside of Louisiana for too long. So, um, I was never going to do that, but I, I feel really, um, really optimistic. Actually, um, the the or a young the young vote, the millennial vote in New Orleans was great this year, uh, this week. Um, we had a lot of voter participation from the millennial um, and early, you know, mail ballot absentee ballot. I, you know, credit I think a lot to Representative Landry and what Charlie and others did um, through the spring and summer to really promote um, early voting, to promote um, voting by mail. You know, if you give people an opportunity to vote, I think they will. And so I would like to see more of that in the future. I would like to see expanded early voting and, um, and, and easier, you know, more accessible locations to vote. Um, same day registration, all the things that we could be doing a better job of, um, I think would, will only increase participation, but, um, I really feel, um, I do feel optimistic for the future of Louisiana and, um, and I think we just need to be real clear with everybody. If you want to make a difference, you know, you're not going to do it. Uh, you're not going to make a big difference in a comfortable blue state. I just don't think you will come down here, help us out. That's a great message. If you want to, if you want to make a big difference in the country, you know, move to Louisiana. I think a lot of folks have moved to Georgia or Colorado or Houston, but you know, come home and be part of the transformation of Louisiana. And look or at the power <laughs> in what Colorado and Georgia have have accomplished because of that. I mean, there's proof. Um, it is. This is not a a a. a a big wish. I mean, this is something that has been successful elsewhere. Um, come here, have babies, raise them to be Democrats, and let's see, have a good future. Um, I love that. That could be part of your campaign for the school board. I love that. So, Devonte, you you actually drill down in your day job on all of the issues that hold Louisiana back. I mean, family insecurity, financial insecurity, poverty homelessness, food insecurity. I mean, in your day job with the budget project, y'all have done an excellent, excellent job of sort of framing um, the depths of our challenges. So what, 
what makes you optimistic about the future and how do we move forward to actually solve some of those problems? Yeah, so I will say this. I don't really believe that much in optimism because optimism, oh, a motorcycle just went by me. Um, optimism to me is a feeling. And so oftentimes we get caught up in our feelings that it's not gonna get better. The data is complex. Um, so I'm a person who believes strongly in what I call genuine hope. Um, genuine hope is the belief of knowing that it can get better even throughout all the obstacles if we just keep the faith and push on. Um, and so I think we have seen it. I, I, I left Louisiana for a little bit. I was in Georgia at the start of Stacey Abrams' vision. Uh, I vividly remember a house party that we were at together when she told it to us. And I kind of looked and said, that's beautiful, but I don't think that will ever happen. And for years later, that, that vision is, is there. We, was she optimistic at the time? No. Was I optimistic? No. But she had what we all need to have, which is hope. Um, and reminding ourselves that even when it looks bad, if we hold on to that hope and remember that we are all fighting towards that arc to bend towards justice, as MLK said, it will get there. Um, and the thing that I tell people all the time is I, I view this as a relay race. I don't know when we will get to the finish line, but I know I have a baton in my hand and my objective from now on till the day I die is to get that baton securely in somebody else's hand to keep on pushing on. Now I may cross the finish line and I may not, but that's our objective. And when we think about it, that we are constantly moving the needle, we can do it. And I think Georgia, Virginia showcases when we decide in Louisiana, we're ready to put in the work. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. There will be setbacks. There will be moments that look like it was right there and it fell apart. Um, we can do it. And so it's just holding on to that hope and not letting our feelings, which is normally what optimism and pessimism do, get in the way of hopefulness for the future and working hard to build power. Well, you know, Devontae, I think you're right. I think it takes a certain level of determination to play the long game. Uh, I was on a conference call earlier with uh, the folks in Georgia and people from around the country that were involved in grassroots organizing to help change the electorate, to bring more people of color and young people and Hispanics and young African-Americans and, and others that have been disenfranchised into the electorate. And they were 10 years, it's taken 10 years to turn uh, Georgia blue. And so I'm just hoping that it's this, your generation of leaders that will give this sense of determination and hope, that will encourage people to come back to Louisiana, that people of commitment and compassion and courage um, will see that there's an opportunity here to make a difference. And, you know, that's really why we call this podcast 17 Minutes to Change the World, because we want people to take a few minutes and see what they can do, what phone calls they can make for a candidate, what postcards they can write, what doors they can knock, what elected officials they can call on a specific issue, you know, because we really believe that we can do better in Louisiana if we hold our elected officials accountable to be informed and to be engaged. And, and it's going to take people being mobilized to make that happen. So there are some runoffs coming up. Katie, we wish you luck in your school board race. And then hopefully we can generate some volunteers for you um, because we need great candidates. 
We need people who are willing to step up and put themselves on the line, um, who are willing to stand up for their values and share their values and their vision uh, with people. So um, thank you all for being with us today. I wanna thank you for listening to 17 Minutes to Change the World. Look for us at louisianaprogress.org uh, and Louisiana Progress on Facebook. Um, and you can get this podcast on uh, Apple, Spotify, and all the places where you get podcasts. So stand up, speak up, show up, because you can make a difference. Thank you. Thank you.